I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 5. We begin a new chapter this morning and have been looking forward to this. Uh, felt somewhat strange to be away last Sunday, but thank you uh, for your warm welcome to my good friend uh, Mark, who was here in my place. Uh, we taught Sunday school together and both taught through the book of John. He continued when I took the call here. He's further ahead now than I am. I started over again when I got here. Uh, but chapter 5 has some interesting material and uh, another of the signs or miracles as we call them in the book of John. John refers to them as signs. And one of the qualities of John's gospel that seems to separate it from the other gospel writers is these long extended stories focusing on specific individuals and the one-on-one -on -one conversations that take place as a result. Um, we see this with Nathaniel, with Nicodemus, with the woman at the well, uh, with this man at the pool of Bethesda today, with a blind man later. Um, and we're really able to see the way our Creator speaks and interacts with those He came to earth to save. This man who knows us better than we know ourselves. So to be able to look in on that is, is quite, uh, quite the insightful look into things we would otherwise not have the opportunity to ever see. Uh, through these stories, we're able to look in on how Jesus speaks to the heart. And uh, one of the things that I want, uh, is, it, it's worth mentioning at the beginning is that a careful reading of conversations like this one, maybe this one in particular, uh, may very well challenge our perceived notions of who Jesus is. This Jesus we think we know so well. Uh, we're church people. We come to church, we sing about Jesus, talk about Jesus, tell others about Jesus, teach our children about Jesus. Do we know this Jesus? Passages like this make us think, and that's good. And it's always good to put this in the form of a question. We've asked this before, and we'll ask it again before we're done with this study. Do you know this Jesus as well as you think you do? And I put emphasis on the word this. The one we're reading about in the book that he inspired. This is how he reveals himself to us. This is the, G the true Jesus. The G Jesus of scripture. So let's begin reading in John 5. And we're going to read a little further than I had mentioned there in the bulletin. I think it's worth our effort to read a little further and uh, set the stage for the coming weeks. But in... Verse 1 of chapter 5, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, 
take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found himself, or found him in the temple, and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Verse 15, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things, these things, on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help to explain these words to us in a way we can understand. And having understood, we ask for your strength to obey, to be obedient to what we understand to be true. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Um, what we just read here at the end is where we'll pick up next week. I wanted to do this so that these all come together. But really the controversy we see there in verse 18 comes from this miracle that takes place on the Sabbath day. And on the human level... This is just what we see from the men who called themselves the rulers in Jerusalem. They would never forgive Jesus for this. They would only be happy after he's dead. What he did on this day and what he said after what he did on this Sabbath is where him and the hostilities between those religiously minded Jews, Pharisees, Sadducees, this is where it all began. So on the same day they hear of this miraculous healing, they're more absorbed in the idea that their code had been broken. And from this point on, they make sure to end that where it started. With that being said, John introduces the story by setting the scene with a detailed description of the pool of Bethesda, where our 19 on the Israel trip were able to uh, see with their own eyes earlier this morning. It was a large pool. It was decorated with five roofed or roofed, however you say that. I think it's correct to use the V sound, roofed, instead of roofed. I remember that from school. Uh, but these are colonnades, uh, porticos, as others might call them. Uh, they're described as a roofed walkway lined with columns. And up until the late 19th century, some thought this place was just made up because its only mention in history was in this place in the Bible and only once. But then archaeologists found it just where John said it was and only a stone's throw from the temple complex where it should have been. And uh, it's been worked on and reworked. You can see in pictures that some may bring back with them. Ask them about it later. 
But you see different sized stones as it goes up where it might have been knocked off and repatched with uh, other stones at different times. But it's there. And the layout of it with its five colonnades and all make sense. Um, verse 3, however, tells us there was a multitude of people there, diseased, handicapped. They're there because of the superstitious, magical rumors that this pool had associated with it. Um, it says a multitude were there. How many is a multitude? A lot. That's really an unnumbered group, usually in public. The word we use, multitude, multi means many. So it's a multiplication of people in an area. Uh, best thing I know to tell you to go look at for some idea would be the fair on the last day. I won't do that again. That, that was a multitude. We spent more time in the car and most of that time trying to park just to get in less time before we had to do it all over again to get home. But there's a bunch of people here. Uh, you've been in places and living this close to Raleigh, you see crowds, you see traffic, and it's just a group of people interested in something, and they're all kind of crammed in. Well, that's what's going on here. And it seemed that they did this regularly. Now, depending on your translation, you might be missing something in this passage. You might have noticed when I was reading through it. What happened to verse 4? Some of you have it, some of you don't, depending on your translation. Now, if you've got a King James or an NAS, it's there. With the NAS, it's got a note at the bottom to tell you something regarding that. The ESV puts the note down at the bottom, but they remove the verse. So does the NIV. And uh, I find it usually better to go ahead and address a subject like that rather than let people wonder. Did I, I paid too much for a Bible that... It's not there. I'm, I'm missing a verse. I want my verses. Well, the note down at the bottom says that this is not found in some of the better, older manuscripts. What we get our Bibles from are copies of the originals that were copied numerous times, handed down through history. And as archaeology and discovery has gone on in years past, we find sometimes older and better manuscripts. And in this case, the older ones and the better ones don't have this verse, which gives the scholars confidence that this verse 4 was not part of what John originally wrote. If that's the case, why is it there in some of our Bibles? Well, some copyists used to write what was called a gloss, which was a descriptive comment in the margin to explain what it meant. Because if we're reading along and we're wondering, all right, they're at this pool, water moving in verse 7, he can't get in. What does that mean? Well, what it meant was there was a lot of people who believed this pool had some magic qualities. The verse, if it's not there in your verse, reads this way. It's the last part of verse 3 and all of verse 4. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And what's even more interesting is in some of the 
copies or fragments that include this include different parts of it. So different phrases of this gloss were added at different times. A gloss put together with other glosses is known as a glossary. That's usually in the back of the book to help you understand things that might not make sense as you read through it without them. So over time, some of these glosses inadvertently got written in as part of the text. And over history, it was looked at as if it was there all along. Now, does this make us think, oh no, big problem. We're calling into question Scripture. Can we trust our Bibles? Absolutely. Because each time we find some of these, and they're rare, they only serve to explain what's already there rather than to call into question or, or con uh, in conflict with what's already there and clear in Scripture. And if you go down to verse 7, you see that the water is moving. That's what this man says in response to Jesus. So what is said in verse 4, whether or not it's Scripture, is true. Nothing is questioned about verse 7. So that's the reason why it's not there. And it was added, evidently, just to let people know this is what folks believed. Um, and when we get to chapter 8, we'll have a larger portion of Scripture that we'll have to ask questions about. And we'll talk more about this when we get there. But at least this is said so we know that when it's coming up. Um, had to do with the way the pool was fed and why it bubbled and... The scholar's best guess is it was naturally fed. And sometimes in that system there were bubbles. It's probably quite a natural effect. But most of the people believed it was an angel. And if you could get in, and at the right time, you could be healed. And the multitude there was evidence of the fact that this was believed to be true. Now one man in particular, this is verse 5 was there who had suffered with his problem for 38 years. Jesus was in Jerusalem for a feast. We learn that in verse 1. We don't know what feast it was. There's speculation as to whether or not it was the Passover. We don't know. Uh, but Jesus sees this man, and he knows that he'd been in that situation for a long time. We read that clearly. And I think we could say that about anybody, don't you? Jesus sees you, and he knows your story. Jesus knows that about everyone. Now, there's a multitude there, but he singles out this one. That's interesting. So what does he say to this man? Well, it's quite simply, it's not complicated. Do you want to be healed? Other translations might use the word well. Do you want to be well or made well or whole? Or made whole. They all mean basically the same thing. The man's sick. Jesus is asking if he wants to be healed. Do you want to have take place in your body the transformation metabolically to take you back to where you were before you had this problem? It's that simple. Now sometimes when we're reading scripture, we tend to read that in a kind of a sterilized way. This is the Bible. We're familiar with this. It's not really the way we talk. Uh, so we kind of, I don't know, discount it. Try to put yourself in this situation. Suppose you were with Jesus. Maybe it was one of these days like, you know, he takes an understudy with him. And you were on the short list. You drew the right straw. You're with Jesus. We're, we're just supposing here. 
and you're walking through this area of a multitude of people who are bad off for one reason or another. It's a sad sight. And Jesus looks at one of them and asks him, do you want to be healed? Our culture, with our political correctness, would probably go, hmm, maybe even a little bit of uh, cringe factor here. Uh, maybe even if, if it was the other way around, if Jesus was the understudy and this is what you do, you might want to tell him, I think I'd go another approach next time. And I, that's a little insensitive. If you were to go visit the rest home this afternoon or a hospital, would you look at someone and say, do you want to be made well? You know the answer to that question. But the idea that they're there means that for some reason or another, or just the simple fact of the clock having, for the most part, run out. To look at a man and say, how about it? Would you like to be healed? And the way this man answers it almost sounds like he's answering a stupid question. It's not a stupid question. Jesus doesn't ask stupid questions. But this sounds like that. And a lot of times the reason why they sound stupid is because we're not hearing them correctly. We'll learn that as we move through here. But to begin with, we just wipe off the table any misspeaking or uh, mishandling of this first uh, part of the conversation with this man. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Whether or not it sounds insensitive or not. The sick man answered him. And the way he answers is in defensive uh, nature. Reveals a lot about uh, his thinking. Look at what it says. Verse 7. The sick man answered him. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, in my study... And the commentaries I had available to me reading about this, I came over and across something a lot. Pretty much across the board of what I'm reading. And most of the commentators were agreed in the fact that this man, as he's described by John, is not a very likable person. And most of the time what he's saying is an excuse. And when he's confronted by the authorities, he blames it on the man that healed me told me, I'm just doing what I was told. And then he turns him in after he talks to him in the temple. So this first excuse here, um, and the more we read about him, maybe it's easier to come to that conclusion. I usually like to, even with uh, the Bible, give the benefit of the doubt to these people. And maybe later he's wondrously saved. But at this point, it's an excuse and then again, the, the, the commentators bring up what happens in chapter 9 with the man who's born blind and this wonderful character this man had. In contrast to this guy, he's pretty dull. So he's giving an excuse. And uh, what's probably more interesting is that Jesus doesn't even make reference to the excuse. He doesn't engage this man. He doesn't say, now come on. Don't think that way. You can do it. We'll find you some help. Somebody to help you into the pool. He, none of that. He goes straight to the command. As, as if perhaps to say through silence. And we don't really want to add a lot of weight to the argument of silence. 
But if this man's going to be healed, it's going to have to come through a command. Tell the man what to do. And that's exactly what he did. He says to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. It's obvious here that the man's hope is in the pool, because that's what he says. You want to be made whole? Well, I can't get in the pool. So his hope for a cure is with the pool. Jesus doesn't even take a moment to explain to him, that's really not true. There's no magic in this pool. The bubbles are because it's fed by a spring. Nor does he take the moment to tell the man, you are looking into the eyes of the man who created you. I am your healer. He doesn't do any of this. These are things that we would do. We'd want to set the man straight. Jesus just says, get up, take your bed and walk. And if you were to analyze those, what's he saying with those simple, direct statements? There's three things that he says. It's not complicated. First is get up. Do the thing that you cannot do because I've asked you to do it. Does that ever sound like Jesus? The craziest thing you could imagine is something you feel he's put on your heart. We, we say it that way sometimes. But this is something he can't do. He hasn't done this for 38 years. Uh, there's no muscles there. The ligaments are weak. There's no muscle memory. There's no balance. There, there's, there's none of that. And this guy actually does it. Maybe it was the look in his eyes or the sound of his voice or who knows. But he does what he's told to do. But what he's told to do is impossible. But that's exactly what he's asked to do. Then he's asked, or commanded rather, take up your bed. Uh, as if to leave no provision for relapse. You're not coming back here anymore. This, this is done. You don't need that. So no going back to your previous lifestyle, whether, whether you want to or not. We do that, don't we? Make provision for the flesh. We've got a, a problem. We keep going back to it. Uh, as far as this... No, it's an empty superstition, a fairy tale. This part is over. And then finally, uh, walk, which could be a way of saying you don't need others to carry you anymore. If the man's going back and forth from this pool, that's by the aid of someone else. But this man's going to do it for himself from this point. Look at verse 9. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed, and he walked. And then this last statement here. Now that day was the Sabbath. There's a problem there. You wouldn't think so. I mean, how many of you got saved on a Sunday? It's not the Sabbath, but it's the first day of the week. It's what we Christians use as our day of worship, set aside for rest. And... Uh, our learning here in church, accountability with each other. It sounds like a great thing. The last phrase sets up the second movement of this paragraph. The first nine verses have to do with setting up the story and what happens. The next nine and what we read this morning have to do with the controversy. And that will really consume the rest of the chapter. We'll study this at least uh, once more, if not more than that. Look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
And then we get the excuse. Well, he told me to. Verse 12, they ask him, well, who is that that told you to? And this man doesn't know. Now, it says Jesus withdrew himself, and there was a crowd in the place. And that's going to become a pattern with Jesus. He's going to be avoiding crowds quite often. Now, when he disappeared, was that right after the man got up, and he turned around and he's gone? Uh, all we know is that in the conversation, whatever it was, he didn't get Jesus' name. Whether or not that speaks to his uh, being less perceptive or confused or we don't know. We'd have to speculate. But technically here, the law, or better described, the tradition of the elders, was in their favor. The man wasn't supposed to be carrying his bed. And there's all different kinds of ways that they would talk about the not working on the Sabbath. And it was really bad if you made mats or beds and were carrying them on Sunday. That meant you were working. Now, you could carry someone else on a bed. You're not carrying the bed necessarily, you're carrying them. And that was allowed. And I think I mentioned to you before, and maybe somebody find this out on this Israel trip. But don't get on the Sabbath elevator in Israel. Because it goes up. And stops at every floor and comes down and stops at every floor. It's automatic. So you can walk in without doing anything and wind up where you want to be. Because pushing a button which has lights in it is considered kindling a fire. That's work. You can't do that. Now they've got a regular elevator for people who don't care about that. I accidentally got the wrong one. That's why I was late to the bus the last time <laughs> that I went. But these are heavy burdens, and they were a big deal to these folks. And that's what's going to get Jesus into so much trouble. And not only that, but what he says in response to the trouble that he's in because of what he did on the Sabbath. But the law being on their side, they think they've got this man. But really, it seems that they're not as much interested in him, this lame man. And you've you got to think about that, too. He's been there 38 years. Jerusalem's not but so big. And it's on the way to the temple. And these religious officials are real big on their almsgiving. You know they knew this guy. He's healed. He's been on his feet for 38 years and now he's walking. But the big deal is not just you shouldn't be carrying that mat. But who told you to carry that mat? And that seems to be more important to them. Because a guy who would tell somebody else to carry a mat on Sunday is more dangerous than somebody who themselves would carry a mat. That's more dangerous to them. So that's where they put their sights. We want to know who he is. They heard of a wonderful healing and a breaking of their code. They're concerned more with the second of the two. Sometimes there are none so blind as those who are certain that they see. And in this case, that's true of these religious officials. Look at verse 14, and we're getting close to our points. There'll be two of them today, and they're toward the end. Basically a way to summarize this story in a way that we can use it for ourselves. Or answer the question, what does this mean to me? How am I supposed to obey? Verse 14, afterward. We don't know how long that means. Afterward, it could be a day, it could be a week, it could be an hour. Just It happened afterward. 
Jesus found him in the temple. And that's interesting, the word found. But look what he said to him. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, if what he said first was offensive, do you want to be made whole? How much more offensive would this be? I mean, what do you do with someone who's had a major change for the better in their life? You're supposed to be happy for them, right? At least that's what we're taught. And you certainly won't want to say anything smart aleck about it. This isn't smart aleck. And what we've got in this verse, it seems, is that Jesus is connecting his 38-year problem with a specific sin in his life. Now, there's other places in Scripture where that's not the case at all. When we get to chapter 9, and we're looking at the man who was born blind. That's how the story starts out. His disciples want to know, all right, who's the one that sinned? And Jesus says, none of them. This is for God's glory. So I don't know which is worse, that, that my sins would bring on problems in my life or that God would introduce problems in my life so He can get the glory for it. Well, the truth is, which one is which is not information that we're privy to. All of that's God's business. And most of the time, He's not telling. In this case, He did. He told this guy, You're well. I've fixed you. Don't sin anymore. There are worse things than being lame for 38 years. That would be the final judgment. Most scholars believe that's what he's talking about. What good would it do you? The same with the man whose son was sick. Comes to Jesus. You've got to heal my son. He's at the point of death. He doesn't go with him, but he does heal him. But what good would it have done this man and his child if Jesus had healed him physically, but to say nothing of spiritual health and then forever and eternity they're separated from him in a place called hell we talked about this last time Jesus is here as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world in every one of these encounters at some point he is going to go for the sin problem the heart problem that's why he's here even though in taking away the sin of the world all of the things that are consequences of sin go to the cross with him so yes, he heals boys. He restores sight. He raises the dead. Heals the lame. These are all consequences. One way or another tied to what happened at the fall in the Garden of Eden. So all of these things make sense to us. We know our theology. It all fits. But to this man who's listening, we don't know what he knows. It seems this sin is tied to his illness. Other passages, it's clearly not. We don't know because that's the Lord's business. But here's point number one. After we read verse 14, we find out from this man's story that our biggest problem is a spiritual problem. This man would probably have said his disability was his biggest problem. Jesus takes care of that and then tells him, there's worse. Your heart and its sinfulness. That's worse than your disability. In other words, he's saying to this man, 
your spiritual walk is more important to me than you ever walk on your real feet. That's something to hear. It's difficult to hear. Same as it was for this man with the boy who's sick. He'd come to Jesus because he needed his help. Not to speak of whether or not that included forgiveness of his sins. So if you could have one request. If you're there at that pool. And the question is put to you. What can I do for you? What would it be? I'm sure there's many things that pop into your mind. Things we walk around with that are hard to carry. Maybe it's personal. Maybe it's for somebody else. Maybe it's I need a job. Maybe it's I want a baby. I know a couple that would want nothing more than that. And for some reason, it's... it's it's not a possibility. There are other avenues. They're involved in that. What if it's... I want my mother's cancer gone. It'd be something. But to, it, it really, you fill in the blank. But if we're good students of the Bible, we know the right answer. The right answer is, Lord... I need my sins wiped away. Because otherwise I'm under the wrath of God and I won't survive this. That's why you're here. You're going to do it for me. You know, the, the thing at the end, or something worse will come on you. The final judgment, Jesus is here to take that for you so you never have to. But how many of us probably could or are in the state of mind that they don't understand it yet and really their life is about mitigating or eliminating the thing that bothers them most on this earth. Sounds like this guy was fine. And, and really when you think about it, we're routinely slow to understanding what Jesus is teaching or saying. And it was the case here. Jesus is talking up here. And people are trying to get it down here. They're, they're, they're missing it. Um, Nicodemus was the first one you need to be born again and his problem was I don't know how I can get back in the womb Jesus talking up here Nicodemus is trying to get it down here Um, what about the woman at the well living water she says you don't even have a bucket where are you going to get that from and then the disciples when they got back uh, he says I've got food that you don't know about and they're like who brought him some food They're off slightly or horribly. But Jesus is saying one thing and they're getting something else. The disciples were the same way. And this guy, do you want to be made whole? And he's like, sure, but um, somebody's going to have to get me in that bubble pool if that's going to happen. When Jesus is standing there about to change his life, but he, he, he he doesn't get it. So what's made clear... In this second conversation at the temple is that he's more concerned with the spiritual. That's this first point. Our biggest problem is a spiritual problem. And the discrepancy between what Jesus is saying and what we're hearing usually has to do with the perception of our need. Our propensity to tailor our understanding of what we get out of this book based on our own needs. 
we hear something like, follow me. And what we hear is, Jesus is going to make my life better. Here. I'll get tips on how to be a better dad. I'll get tips on how to not fight with my wife. I'll get maybe financial tips, maybe even dietary tips. This will be good for me. This will, this will be just the scrubbing that I need to be presentable to people that are important to me. It's the same for everybody. Jesus is here for your sin. Not to give you your best life now. Your best life's later. In glory. When you look like Him in all points. But for now, there's a lot of work to be done. And it's more important that He change you than that He bless you. We see that over and over and over and over again in Scripture. This man had continued in sin. So has everybody else. Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. So He's going to touch that nerve before His encounter with anyone is over. And He won't rest until we know that. Here's the second point. Jesus won't rest until you know that your biggest problem is a spiritual problem. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So he gives him up. Verse 16, and this is why John's explaining to us the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them. So Jesus and these rulers are together again. And he says, my father is working until now and I am working. Now what's the problem with the Jewish people? What are they all talked about? Work on the Sabbath. That sounds kind of smart aleck thing to say, isn't it? I'm working and my daddy's working. And it's the Sabbath. So Jesus is saying, that's exactly what I'm doing. But the context here, we'll go back to that in a minute. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That was a, a, a higher infraction. That's blasphemy in their book. But what is this business? The father's working until now, and I am working. Well, the rulers are incensed because the rest is being violated. Sabbath is for rest, and you're working. That's the problem. Jesus has said, basically, my father and I are working, as if to say, there's no rest until my work for the men of this world is complete. How many times do you hear him, I must be about my father's business. And Sabbath was no rest for him. He's here to take away the sin of the world. And while there are sinners, especially one in a problem for 38 years at a pool, Jesus won't rest until that guy knows the truth. As, as awful as it might have been to hear it from Jesus, from this guy, man that this guy doesn't even know. Jesus is at work. He's still at work. And his work in your life may actually involve a list of problems. Problems that are smaller than your biggest problem, but those little problems help you see your big problem. Sometimes. Other times not. That's God's business. Anything in this life is fair game in the hands of our Creator to get your attention. You've got to know. That's why He's here. Do you think Jesus would come to this earth, die a horrible death on a cross for you, and then not tell you about it? 
That'd be foolish. So he'll tell you about it if you've got ears to hear. So Jesus is saying to this man in the temple, strange enough, he hadn't been in that place in 38 years because the lame weren't fit. They didn't fit the mold. So he's in the temple where people would make sacrifices to atone for their sin. And this is where Jesus says, don't sin anymore. Why? So that you don't have to continue in sin. That's why I've healed you. Any of you familiar with the book? The short name would be Les Mis. It's been put into movie form and translated, put into operatic plays and so forth. It's French, so I have a hard time even saying the full name or pronouncing any of the characters. But um, I have to confess that my first understanding of this book was watching a movie. Um, those big books at that point in my life were still scary to me. Um, but I was struck with one scene early in the movie where you got the main character who'd been imprisoned for a long time and he was released. But in that culture, an ex-con is a marked man and he found difficulty, if not an impossible task to actually earn a living wage honestly so he decides he's going to go back to what he'd done before and he is taken in by a priest fed a meal and given a bed and then in the night he begins to fill his bag with the man's silver silverware and leaves in the night he's caught and he's brought back to the priest's house in cuffs and they're just sure that they know what's taking place and the priest now has the option to identify him and send him away for the rest of his life I mean, he's, he's done multiple crimes and it's obvious that he's done them he's condemned but he doesn't do that he says that he gave it to him and he left too early because he didn't take the best of it. He didn't take the candlesticks. So he gets those and puts them in his bag in front of the authorities and says, turn him loose. So they uncuff him and they walk away. But the drama in this scene is where he takes hold of this man. And he says, don't you ever forget. You've promised to become an honest man. I have bought you. I've redeemed you, ransomed you with this silver. You no longer belong to evil. And then he says this, I have given you back to God. Now what chance is a criminal God like that? He's been given freedom. But the choice is left to him as to what to do with it. And even then, immediately I thought, that, that's, they stole that from the Bible. This is what Jesus has done for us. We're condemned men. We broke the law. There, there's no question there. But Jesus has come and paid the ransom. Gives us our freedom from sin. I've healed you. You don't have to sin anymore. You can choose to sin, but, but don't. It's a mockery of what I've done for you. And having paid our sin debt, He has given us back 
to God. His Father. He paid for us. That's what has happened to this poor man at a pool. He's been given the honest truth. You don't have to sin. I've paid for that. Now, in this case, Jesus would take all of that, including his physical ailment, to the cross and pay for it. For the rest of us, it's all been done. Our salvation is not what we do. It's what someone has done for us. But think of these things. The, the, the themes here are, are huge. And maybe the most astonishing thing of the whole story is the fact that he chose one out of a multitude to tell this to. You might be the one out of this room that Jesus is speaking to through this old story. Have you got ears to hear? This man walked off. We don't know if he ever did anything about it. You may have walked off from situations like this before. Well, Jesus will not rest until you know that your biggest problem is your sinful heart and he's here to take it away and give you a new one if you'll trust him by faith. So a, a question that sounded dumb in a magic pool setting, do you want to be healed? Is similar to another question that is considered dumb in churches where people come to church and dress up and might have been coming for decades. Do you want to be saved? Not your life sorted out, not your home cleaned up, not your rap sheet expunged. You want to be made new. Like you were designed to be when God created you for the garden. Jesus came here to make that possible. And if you have been made whole, you don't need to sin. You will. You don't have to. So stop it. That's what he says. Stop it. And you almost want to just wave Paul's flag. Look, I'm, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do. I'm stuck in this body of death until the Lord frees me from it. I'm, I'm trying my best, but I don't think you had to convince anyone who's like Paul. You need a Savior. And the Savior was standing there in front of this man. Maybe the Savior's standing in front of you. Do you want to be made whole? Don't continue in sin. There's something worse. And that's facing the judgment without my help. But don't say that I didn't offer it to you. With that said, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, these, these themes could not be more eternal Something as simple as you walking from point A to point B, asking a man a simple question that cut right down to the soul and forces the conscience to deal with morality. Lord, I ask that if there's someone here who's considered these things, maybe not for the first time, but for the hundredth time, but now it makes sense. Lord, save them. Make them whole. Rescue them, ransom them from sin. Set them free to tell others that you can do the same for them. We thank you for this story. Lord, may we believe. John wrote it that we might believe. Do we believe? Help our unbelief. Lord, thank you for time together in your church this morning with our brothers and sisters. Thank you for your word and for grace. We ask this in your name. Amen.
Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard this morning from your word of one who sat beside the pool of Bethesda for many, many years. And then having an encounter with Jesus. And Father, we have sung about Beulah land. And we pray that if there is someone here who has been sitting by the pool or someone who does not know the way to Beulah land, that you would touch their heart and their mind that on this day they would make the most important decision of their lives. The decision that would bring them a peace, a joy, and a happiness that they have ever, never known before. Father, we pray for our mission, the Caribbean Christian Center for the Deaf, a mission that uh, we have supported many years with prayers, with finances, and with physical help through trips to the Caribbean. We pray that you would bless this mission, that you would give us a heart and a mind to support the many missions and the outreach programs that we have here at Wake Chapel Christian Church. Thank you for the opportunities that you give us. And thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth knowing his destiny. And yet the love was so great that he came and suffered and died that our sins would be forgiven, that we could have an eternal life with Almighty God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.